Welcome everyone to episode 88, Homing Neural Stem Cells. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Daylin James, and this is The Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast, and thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Daylin? Doing well. It's warming up on the East Coast. There was a big snowfall you've probably already heard. I know this is a delay in the podcast, but bear with me because it was intense. I've, I've never been one of these guys that, uh, you know, I was unsympathetic to everyone griping about digging out their car from the snow. I literally, I had to like get into an igloo. And what's worse, I had this tiny kid shovel, which is so <laughs> pathetic that like broke halfway through because this ice is like black ice. I mean, I, I was the most pathetic guy on the streets this last week. And, you know, I'm used to it by now, but I'm coming out of that glum week into the springtime. I know. We're recording the day after the vernal equinox. And so spring is here. The flowers are starting to inch their way out and to bloom and all the allergies are starting to make their way into the air. Hey. (laughs) Yeah, I know what you mean about those little shovels. This winter when it snowed here in Portland, my husband ordered a shovel on Amazon and it showed up and I was super excited to get a shovel because we didn't have a shovel. And it turns out it's like a little emergency shovel that you keep in your car. And it was like, it was like a hand trowel. And I'm like, this is not working. Oh my God. The same thing happens to that. My wife calls that Amazon syndrome. You order something, you look at the picture, it comes, it's like a tiny little box for holding pens. Exactly. Not what the picture implied. Maybe you got to read a few more details. And that's what we're here for. Science details, right? We ready to get down to business? Yes, yes. All right, everyone. Make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com where you can find all of our past episodes and other great resources. And of course, you can follow us on social media. We are at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. All right. We have a fantastic show today. We are going to discuss the latest science and stem cell news, and we are interviewing stem cell scientist Sean Hington about his work on using neural stem cells to home in on brain cancers. But first, we're going to round it up. What do you say, Dalen? Yes, the first spring roundup, Kiki. I'm ready to get into it. But first, let me tell you, this week's roundup, it's sponsored by Neural Cell News which is sent to more than 5,000 neuroscience researchers every week. Sign up at NeuralCellNews.com to keep current with everything that's happening in the neural field. Pertinent to today's show, I'm sure his paper was in there, Neural Cell News. They talk about all the good stuff, but we'll get to that first. Kiki, why don't you get started on some general science stories? A lot to talk about this week. A lot to talk about this week. We're going to start up the roundup with... Oh, how science policy in the government is going to affect science in the real world. So last week, Trump and his administration released its first proposed budget outline. And while this is just the budget outline and there's a long process ahead of actually debating the specifics within Congress, this is kind of giving us a sense of how science is or is not prioritized in this particular administration. There are massive increases in some areas of the budget, and most of those are military. For example, there is a large increase, $1.4 billion increase in funding to nuclear weapons. 
So if there are increases in one area, there are going to be decreases in another. So there are many cuts proposed to different science agencies. The National Institute of Health is going to see a reduction from its 2017 budget, which is $31 billion, to $25.9 billion. This is going to lose about $5.8 billion, or a 20% drop. Additionally, Department of Health and Human Services is going to be cut by $15.1 billion, a decrease of almost 18%. And this is the smallest biomedical science budget since 2002. So if we're reducing the budget that much for biomedical science and research efforts, it probably will have a significant, potentially crippling, I mean, I don't want to sensationalize with words like crippling, but it really will have an effect on the U.S. biomedical research sector. For sure. Yeah. Uh, The Department of Energy is also facing major cuts with a reduction of about 6%. Funds are going to move So move away from the energy and physics, and this is where the money is going to go more toward nuclear weapons programs. Now, I don't know whether that means places like the National Lab in the Livermore National Lab, where they have an energy research lab that has a partial focus on the high energy physics of fusion But part of the research looking into energy production, part of their research budget is for understanding the decay of our nuclear weapons stockpile. And so maybe there will be more money put toward those kinds of experiments at the Livermore National Lab. I don't know. I doubt it. I really doubt it. Yeah. Or if it's just like, let's make more nuclear weapons. <laughs> yes. Yes. Based on my experience with this guy and his government and him appeasing, I guess, his base, I think that's what they're going for. I think they're just like, hey, <sighs> why work on solutions? Let's just, you know, build a wall and shoot some people. That's right. Especially, you know, we're getting all buddy-buddy with Russia. We are the two countries with the largest nuclear we- weapons stockpile at the moment. And, you know... we over time, been trying to get rid of them so that we, you know, go backwards on that nuclear countdown clock that has been ticking down. You know, unfortunately, since Trump came into office, that clock has ticked closer to midnight, which means that we are getting closer and closer to the potentiality of a nuclear event taking place. We don't want that. That's just not good for anybody. Not going to work out for anybody involved. I'll be honest. I think this is a a real major overture, and it's chilling. But uh, the the administration, I mean, Trump administration, it's like the craziest people in Washington nowadays. And I think a lot of the Republicans are much more sensible. And as you were saying, this is an about-face on where we've been going with nuclear weapons and reducing them, and an about-face in the trends of how we're funding science and progress along those lines. So I have a hard time believing that everybody in Congress has, you know, been fighting against these things. They've been moving forward, and I think they'll continue to move forward. This skinny budget is going to fatten up, in my view. Like I said, there's still a lot of debate ahead. Other places that have been cut, Office of Science in the DOE is seeing a cut of $900 million. That's down about 20%. And its website says that the Office of Science is a single largest supporter of basic research in the physical sciences in the United States. And so this will lead to job losses nationwide. The Environmental Protection Agency also faces some major cuts. 
$2.6 billion in its funding is out. This is a reduction of about a third. It will end up with a firing of about a fifth of the EPA's employees. And funding for enforcement of regulations is down by about a quarter. And the Office of Research and Development is going to lose half its funding if this budget goes forward. The Superfund program for cleaning up contaminated areas around the country is going to lose 30% of its budget. And the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative and other geographic programs are completely eliminated. So there are areas related to the environment and the maintenance of and the stewardship of our environment, the science of understanding our impacts on the environment. It's just going to stop for a while if this funding goes away. You know, I understand their mission in the government right now. They want to cut the budget, right? It's cut, 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 and things are going to go. And that makes sense. But this is clearly, clearly reducing the prioritization of science, like we've said, which I don't think is good news for the future of our country and the future of scientific research in this country. And if you want to voice your displeasure, their fivecalls.org is a wonderful website to go to that will help you call your representative or congresspeople. For different issues, you can specify issues and it'll tell you the phone number of exactly who to call. It takes about five minutes to get on the phone and call somebody and let them know that you are unhappy. Additionally, or if you're happy with the budget, go ahead and let them know you're happy. But fivecalls.org is a great place to go for the phone numbers of who to reach to make your voice heard. And additionally, on April 22nd, which is Earth Day, there will be a March for Science and you can go out and march and be seen. And if you're interested, go to marchforscience.com to find out details on the main march or on satellite marches near you. Moving on, speaking of mistakes, (laughs) are we making some mistakes here? (laughs) Mistakes can make your brain pause, like a little mental hiccup when you make a mistake. And some researchers figured this out by studying a small group of participants who had to face a some flashing circles on a screen. They had about 23 individuals whose brain activity were monitored while they looked at these two concentric circles. And the participants had to respond with one hand if the circles were the same color and with the other hand if the circles were different. So while they were monitored, If the individuals made a mistake, and now I'm making a mistake in how I present the information. There we go. (laughs) Usually, they, after making a mistake, participants answered the next question correctly if they had about a second or so to recover. But if the next question or challenge came under a second, it was as if the brain didn't have enough time to recover because it was paying attention to the mistake that had just been made. And accuracy dropped by about 10% when the timing was as low as about 0.2 seconds. And so this electrical activity recorded from the visual cortex actually showed that there was less attention, less visual activity being paid to the next trial if participants had just made a mistake than if they'd responded correctly. And so this implies that the speed of mental challenges and making mistakes and mental processing of errors 
can have an impact on how you perform at different tasks. And so most tasks that we're doing are fairly slow. Like you're going to the grocery store, walking down the aisle, you pick up the wrong brand, you put it back, you find the brand you want, pick it up. That's a slow processing thing that's not really going to be impacted. But if you're driving or flying a jet plane, these kinds of things that require very fast processing might push the limits of the brain's activity. So the recovery from errors in these kinds of high-paced activities could be impacted. And I think one of the next questions that would be interesting to find out is with a larger group of participants, is there a difference in the mental activity of people who are trained for high-speed response? Like do race car drivers have a different response time than people who don't have those kinds of skills? Do people who actually do, you know, the third-person shooter gaming online, do they have a faster response time? Do typists, you know, because I notice while I'm typing, if I make a mistake and I have to back up, it does actually slow me down. And I've noticed that before for myself, but I'm not a trained typist. I never took typing in high school. I wonder also, is there a way that you could, like, you, you talk about these high stakes situations, if you're challenged very quickly, 0.2 seconds versus a second, mm-hmm. it can drastically change the outcome there. I wonder if you're in a jet plane and there's a mistake in the input, maybe the computer should like freeze you out for one second as opposed to letting you react. Right. You know, so there may be a way that you can mitigate the mistake if you can have like a kind of AI that doesn't let you magnify your mistake by freaking out and point. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, I like that. There you go. I just saved a few lives, Kiki. Come on. That's right. Yeah. Well, this is an interesting kind of study because our mental processing, you know, there's this idea that we kind of, our brains are ahead of our awareness. So our consciousness of situations runs about 0.2 to 0.25 seconds behind everything. So this is an interesting amount of timing for the error processing as well, because it's like our brain is ahead of us and usually knows when we are going to make a mistake. So previous studies have shown that if you're typing and hit the wrong key, your brain already knew before you hit the wrong key that you were going to do it. No way. But you did it anyway. Yeah. And why did it do it, stupid <laughs> brain? Yeah. And so then it's the brain going, oops, okay, you messed up. Now you have to fix it and go back and change it. And so then there's like a, a readjustment period, I think. And that's what this kind of a study is getting at. So there's some interesting stuff here on how the brain and our conscious awareness of stuff and our ability to perform plays out. Got to bring that to Trump. We got to give him like a minute, though, after his mistake. (laughs) You are not allowed to tweet again. (laughs) Next study, there are some researchers publishing in Science Advances that they are developing a new method of fighting off fungal pathogens that grow in grains and beans. So aspergillus is a mold that actually this fungus creates a toxin while it has a protein within it that goes on to create the toxin. And so these researchers have come up with a way to genetically engineer corn to create RNA to destroy the production of those carcinogenic toxins the aflatoxins that get produced by this aspergillus mold. So uh, aflatoxins and other fungal toxins affect up to 25% of crops worldwide. So coming up with a way to mitigate that could have 
a cost benefit of up to about $270 million each year. In their trials, the researchers genetically engineered a strain of corn, and they had a control not genetically engineered strain. And then they infected them both with Aspergillus flavus, which is a species that releases the most potent aflatoxins that affect human and animal health. And then after allowing it to grow for a month, they consistently measured more than 1,000 parts per billion of this toxin in the unmodified corn and sometimes up to 200,000 parts per billion. So a month of just unfettered growth and this mold was just like, yes, toxins <laughs> everywhere. Yikes. Yeah, in the genetically modified corn, they were unable to detect the aflatoxins at all. And so normally crops intended for human consumption are used for animal feed are destroyed if they have more than 20 parts per billion of aflatoxin in them. And there are many countries that don't even screen for the toxins and people get sick all the time. So this is a, a pretty neat development. However, it's, you know, this RNA interference where the modified corn produces the RNA that then gums up the works of the protein that produces the toxin. There's not enough research yet to know whether or not it'll have downstream effects, whether this RNA will run amok and get involved in other processes. We just know that it's involved in this particular toxin production. So there's still a long way to go before this is corn that will be consumer ready, but this is a step in the direction of trying to protect ourselves. GMO, nobody's going to like it. You're going to get a whole lot. They just hate it for no reason. I know, right? <laughs> it's not all bad, everybody. Come on. People rather have Aspergillus flavus. They, they'd rather have mm -hmm. that than a nice, neat corn with no aflatoxin. Give me the flavus, they say. Give me the flavus. I'll make myself stronger. What doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Is that it? Fools. <laughs> Step in the direction of trying to make themselves stronger, better, faster. Long time ago, Neanderthals roamed the earth, you know, before humans and up to the time of humans, Neanderthals were all around. And we are very curious about their lifestyles and what they did and, you know, how advanced were these humans, human-like individuals on the face of the planet. Anyway... There's a new study that has come out in Nature March 8th that Neanderthals from a couple of locations in Belgium's Spy Cave and also El Cidrone in Spain, they had different diets. And that kind of makes sense. They were located in different locations, different ecosystems, so they're not necessarily going to be eating the same foods. These researchers discovered what they were eating by looking at their teeth. Because, you know, they didn't have toothbrushes back in the days of the Neanderthals. And so Neanderthals had plaque buildup. And in that plaque that was preserved on these fossilized teeth are the chemical signatures of the foods that they ate. So there's a suggestion that the Belgian Neanderthals ate woolly rhinoceros and a wild sheep. And those in Spain like to eat moss, mushrooms, and pine nuts. And so this uh, suggests that there was a wide span of different dietary intake based on what they had around them. And the other interesting finding from this is that one of the individuals from the El Cidrone, Spain location 
had an abscess. There were signs that there was a dental abscess and that this individual had eaten material from poplar trees. Poplar trees have salicylic acid in them. So there's the component that we use for painkilling in aspirin that was present in this plant that this individual who had an abscess ate. So was he using it as medication? We don't know, but it's very possible. Paleo. I got to tell all my paleo friends when they give them, give them a nice plate of moss. <laughs> hey, get after that, guys. Yeah, and going into the whole paleo thing, this just shows that, yeah, well, Neanderthals weren't even eating a paleo diet in the days <laughs> of the Paleolithic yeah. era, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's something that's been appropriated by all the hipsters out there now. Come on. Yeah. Snap out of it. But I guess, you know, yeah. it's, it, there's, I wonder if that's, is that in keeping with the paleo? I, I, I've never done it, but I guess the pine nuts, mushrooms, moss, meat, I guess that all fits in. But no one, who knew? that they had the aspirin and all kinds of kind of soft medicine there. These Neanderthals weren't so dumb as people think of them. No, yeah, so it's kind of interesting. And this falls in with some other data from a different cave from a little while back that kind of pointed in this direction that there was medicating, self-medicating through natural plants taking place in the days of the Neanderthals. And they were also, the researchers were able to extract a genetic blueprint for an ancient microbe, and it makes it at 48,000 years old, the oldest microbial genome ever sequenced, and it's called Methanobrevibacter oralis. Hmm. Is that what came out of this dude's mouth? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> old mouth microbes. There we go. How mundane and glorious. I always thought the Neanderthal lifestyle was just so glamorous, but now I see it's just a lot of plaque buildup and diarrhea. And diarrhea. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Ugh, tough life. Well, if that'll do it for the, uh, the Neanderthal science, and we're going to bring it into the future. Is that all right with you? Can I get into it? Bring it in. Bring it in. Well, I don't know. It's a tough story. It's, I guess it's mixed. You may have heard there's this story, these stories that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine. The one that made a bigger splash, I think, was the one about these poor older ladies being blinded by these unproven stem cell treatments. But there was another side of that, too. Anyway, as we talked about on the show, there's this blindness sort of macular degeneration that's a great candidate for stem cell therapeutics. There's trials going on in Japan right now with IPS-based therapies. But we've also talked on the show in the past about how these unproven, rushed, kind of, you know, touristic stem cell therapies can be really dangerous and can exploit those who are really unaware of the risk. Now there's this pair of papers published in the Wednesday issue of New England Journal of Medicine that's underscoring both facets of the promise and the peril of stem cells and therapy. So in the one report, the researchers document the cases of these three elderly women who were blinded after getting stem cells derived from the fat tissue from this for-profit treatment center in Florida. Okay, so they liposuctioned out adipose tissue, isolated the mesenchymal stem cells probably from them, stem cells, quote-unquote, and then just shot them into the eye. Yeah. It was marketed as a treatment for macular degeneration, one of the most common causes of blindness in the elderly. And notably, each of these women in the first trial, they got injection into both eyes, 
which is just not what you do. Right. In a trial, you need a control, right? You put one eye or the other. It's ludicrous. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things you need in a trial. This could hardly be called a trial. But the people defending it are saying it is. But I'm not even going to address their claims. But isn't it, in that study also, I mean, they, they took stem cells removed from the fat, but they didn't do anything special. They just isolated the stem cells and put them in. So there was not any, it wasn't, wasn't any specialized stem cell. It was not, no. I mean, it was. It was just a soup. And this is kind soup. of where the FDA needs to step in because the regulatory apparatus as it is, it says that if cells are taken from your own body, autologous cells with minimal manipulation, then they can't be considered new drug or therapeutic that needs to go through the FDA trial process or needs to be approved. So essentially, the fact that they're taking the soup from the patients and not doing much with it and then shooting back in is their shield and their defense for their therapy. But I'm hoping this shield, I just want to comment because we commented on the science budget earlier. This is the exactly the kind of thing that we need money for regulating. Yes. We need the FDA to have money for empowering its regulations. For sure. And I think the FDA is coming around on this. The, the proliferation of these therapies, the FDA is starting to crack down, but it's just, I think, the format that that regulatory apparatus is going to take is still in the process. But these are the kind of stories that, once elucidated, are going to force the issue. I mean, there's a lot of things wrong with this. These patients, you know, with a typical trial, one, you do it carefully, there's oversight, there's regulatory approval necessary, but also, you know what? You don't make the patients pay. And that's what happened right. in this case. All of these three patients had to pay to receive these injections solutions that supposedly contained stem cells. Stem cells in air quotes there because they were removed from the fat, but, you know, the composition of those cells, as you alluded to, was not known. And the effectiveness of this procedure is totally unknown. Obviously, it's not very effective. It didn't really work. <laughs> Obviously, it's the opposite. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is not going to cure you, but it'll make you blind. I mean, I don't get it. There What's the go. logic there? These women, in fact, because they settled out of court, a lot of the details weren't named because they had a non-disclosure agreement. But yeah. one of the patients was able to come out with information. It was pretty damning to U.S. Stem Cell Inc., Okay, that's who's the charlatans that are putting this practice forward. But enough about these guys, because I want to focus on the other side. This is another report in the same journal, which has gone, it's the better way to go about it. This is a patient suffering from the same condition. And this patient uh, got a different kind of therapy, which is the IPS-based therapy. Her skin cells were changed into IPS cells. It was a carefully designed study performed in Japan. And this was the first time that these IPS-derived cells or any IPS-derived cells have been administered to a patient to treat any condition. And the good news here is that in this case, the IPS cells were converted into this RPE or retinal pigmented epithelium that are the cells destroyed by macular degeneration, not just cells from adipose tissue of undefined composition. These are the cells that are lost. And of course, they treated only one of the patient's eyes, right? Because one, they wanted to have a point of comparison, but two, if God forbid something went wrong, she'd still have some remaining vision in the untreated eye. Well, after at least a year, there have been no complications in the patient, and the patient has not experienced any further deterioration of vision in the treated eye. So this is really promising, and of course, there has to be repeated with many more patients and become more quantitative and we need to assess the long-term risk. But I think this is the counterpoint. This is kind of the ray of light. You know, we have this stem cell ink where they're shooting undefined tissue into the eye. That's given a black eye. 
Sorry about the pun. But in the other case here, we have a ray of light to really double down <laughs> you on are. the metaphor. There um, you go. Um, good. I'm out of control. Well, that's where I'm going to leave it. I mean, it's pretty obvious. One of these groups is being irresponsible. The other, I think, is doing it the right way. And we need to reward those who are moving forward. And we need to get the FDA to really crack down on these unregulated studies and these centers that are clearly, clearly exploiting patients who are desperate to try and make a profit. It's terrible. Yeah. And I mean, we talk about this happening in other countries, that people go to other countries where it's less regulated so that they can get experimental treatments. But you don't hear about it happening as much in the United States. And so when this story came out, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is not good. Well, it's happening a lot. The United States is supposed to be the safe place, right? And nope, it's obviously not so much. Not so, not much. so much. I mean, not just the eye. eye. This has had high visibility. Ha ha, more. But <laughs> the, uh, the truth is there's a ton of stem cell injections of this type that are being used for, you know, back pain or whatever kind of orthopedic condition. So it's out of control. Something needs to be done. And I think we're really on the precipice here of some serious regulations being instituted. Is there a location where consumers can go to find out, like to educate themselves yeah. about good studies? There absolutely is. I don't have the research off the top of my head, but we'll post it on the website. There was a study in cell stem cell. Paul Knopfler, who's been a, a real leader, I think, in exposing these clinics, yeah. has, has wrote a nice study, and he's focused a lot in his blog and in his studies and in the media on exposing these clinics and kind of sh you know, casting a light on what the state of the field is and the problems, mostly, that need to be overcome. Oh, well, you know, there is some other stuff that's going on, and it's good. It's good. And this Yay. is a study that's not in the U.S. Maybe that's why it's good. Right. What happened to the U.S.? <laughs> we used to be good. Well, researchers from Luxembourg Center for Systems Biomedicine of the University of Luxembourg and an international team have now identified a mechanism by which the body orchestrates the regeneration of red and white blood cells from progenitor cells. You'd think this is something we'd know, right? We've been doing blood cell, stem cell treatments and studied hematopoiesis for a lot of years, but this is still, you know, kind of a black box. According to Dr. Alexander Skupin, the group leader, this finding can help us improve stem cell therapy in the future. He's the head of integrative cell signaling in the group at the Luxembourg Center for Systems Biomedicine, LCSB. Although all cells in an organism, they have the same DNA, some act as different tissues, you know? There's a big diversity of tissue types in the body. And we understand how these individual cells work, but how they designate themselves while during development and also maintenance of homeostasis in particular organ systems, how do these cells diversify into all the lineage necessary to comprise an organ or an organ system? Well, in order to learn more about this process, Alexander Skupin and his team treated blood stem cells from mice with growth hormones, and then they watched and tracked them closely to see how the progenitor cells behaved during differentiation into either white or red blood cells. They observed the cell's transformation and saw that it didn't occur in a linear, targeted fashion, but really kind of opportunistically. Each progenitor cell was adaptable. Depending on what the niche support and environment was, it would integrate itself into different types of tissue or different types of cells depending on what the body needed. So it's not like this other paradigm of a cell is 
the fate is dictated early, it's kind of like, oh, well, let's see. I'll maintain my options here. You know, like I'm on Tinder. I'm swiping right. I got a lot of options. I don't want to commit. So it's not as sell. This is to quote Alexander Scoopin. It's not as so the cell takes a ticket at the beginning of its differentiation and then goes right to the destination. Rather, it gets off frequently to look around and see what line is best to take. By this mechanism, a multicellular organism can adapt and regrow new cells depending on what the needs are. And before these progenitor cells differentiate once and for all and lose that stem cell character, they can see which cell type is in demand and then develop into the cell type that best suits the environment that it's living in or best suits the needs of the organism. With this study, the group has shown for the first time that the cell fate is not predetermined and doesn't follow a straight line. And this is not just a process uh, that's, you know, in the blood cell system, according to Alexander Scoop. And he's thinking that's something that happens in all progenitor cell types. And they've, in fact, observed firsthand that the same differentiation pattern occurs in the iPS cells, so-called induced pluripotent stem cells. So this is knowledge that may be applied more broadly. It may improve the success of iPS cell therapies or maybe even adult stem cell therapies in the future. One of the things about the body is that it does heal itself, but sometimes in pathological conditions, it's really hard for the right tissue to emerge or to the right degree. So if we can understand how the cells respond to their environment, maybe we can kind of foster a better healing environment and guide cells within the body toward becoming the cells that are necessary for repair. And growing new limbs. Yeah, I don't know about that. The new limbs. Can I grow a tail? Can I grow another arm? We'll get, we'll get that going for you, but I'm not promising anything. I'm thinking more we'll work on your vital organs, Kiki. God oh, knows okay. you're in perfect health. Organ-wise, you're like age 15. Except for maybe my liver. Yeah, the liver may need help. That does a good job repairing itself. Maybe we <laughs> yeah. give it a little boost. I'd love a liver boost. That would be great. We'll give you a liver boost. We'll give you a liver boost, but not right now. you got to talk to Dr. Scoopin. Scoopin. He'll tell you all about your liver. Yeah, love it. Well, talking about old and young, I'll tell you, have you noticed as you get old, your gastro resistance gets a little bit less? When I was a kid, I had like an iron stomach. I could eat anything, and I did. It was disgusting. Now, I'll be honest, I don't want to pat myself on the back, but I've gotten a little bit healthier, and now when I have a craving, you know, I want to go get some McDonald's or some other kind of fast food, I eat it, I just can't handle it. I get sick to my stomach. I don't know why I keep doing it. I just can't help myself. But I think this is what happens with older people. As you get old, your gut gets old. And you know, intestines, they experience a lot of wear and tear, Kiki. They need a lot of these stem cells. They live in our guts. And without these stem cells, our ability to absorb the food would dwindle. And the bacteria from the digestive tract would breach into the bloodstream. We'd get septic. It'd be a disaster. So we need this constant regeneration In the gut, you know, there's tons of turnover in the gut. And without the regenerative properties of these gut stem cells, we'd be in serious, serious trouble. This is a a study that was reported in Cell Reports talking about the possibility of reversing aging in gut stem cells. There's a lot of chemical signals that are predominant in young intestinal stem cells versus old intestinal stem cells. They took mice, they chopped up their intestines and looked at what was going on between them and they found there was a lot going on in the young that wasn't in the old. 
And they focused really on this one pathway, the Wnt pathway, which plays a key role in embryonic development, does pretty much everything. Yeah. But it was so enriched in this one young self-type versus the old, they thought it may have something to do with the aging. Specifically, you know, the aging, when you talk about the phenotype of aging, it leads to architectural changes. As you get into older gut stem cells, when you put these stem cells in culture from young versus old mice, they form different structures. And this is what the researchers and the, the, the group leader behind this hypothesize may be underlying some of the phenotype of the aging gut. So what the group showed is that when you take the old stem cells, though, and you supplement them with uh, Wnt, you can kind of reinforce the phenotype of the younger stem cells on them. And you'll get like the same type of architectural pattern of these. Now, it's not really certain what the change in gut architecture means for digestion in these age-related gut health problems, but the changes likely affect the intestine's ability to heal after the wear and tear and the typical trauma of just being in that toxic environment. I mean, remember, every meal you digest it requires a lot of squeezing in the gut and all the acids are in there breaking down the food. So this can be really damaging to cells. And since the gut's also full of all the microbes, your gut bacteria are, what's it called? The biome, microbiome in, in the gut, which is also important to gut health. The niche for this kind of the microbiome may be affected in these older guts. So we're not really sure what's going on mechanistically, but the Wnt experiment suggests a kind of promising direction for research. Even though this pathway is difficult to manipulate, the ability for manipulation of Wnt signaling to reverse intestinal stem cell aging in vitro at least means that this may be a pathway that uh, clinicians can exploit. So we'll see, but uh, fingers crossed on whether or not we can fix the gut, make it young. Well, that would be really exciting. I mean, I'm coming from a, a brain perspective as well, and there's a huge amount of literature that's developing about the gut-brain connection, that the health of the gut actually influences the health of the brain itself and our thinking abilities and our, you know, our reaction times. And so there's a lot that potentially could be helped by making the gut younger. It's cool. Get that gut young. Yeah. Sounds bizarre. I mean, I don't know about a young gut. My kid won't eat anything, so maybe not too young. <laughs> just like mature, but not old and withered. I just don't want my gut to get all upset whenever I have spaghetti. Come on. <laughs> Cheer up, gut. Cheer up. All right. So now we're on. We're on to cancer therapeutics. So this is a new tack. I love this. Cancer stem cells. You know, we're all about, we've had a lot of guests talk about cancer stem cells. Just last week, this is... Cancer stem cells mediate our last episode, this tumor evolution idea. These stem cells, they are genomically unstable. They're primed for metastasis. They're really tough to destroy. They gain this resistance that allows them to evade typical chemotherapy. So it's like a nuclear arms race. We just keep trying to make better and better treatments. In this study published a couple weeks ago in Science Translational Medicine, we have a novel therapy that may be able to both shrink tumors and target cancer stem cells. This is cool. It's like a two-for-one antibody. It's called CT16, CT16. It's targeted against two pathways, EGFR, epidermal growth factor receptor signaling, and not signaling, both of which are implicated in cancer stem cell growth, or cancer growth and cancer stem cells specifically. So 
They showed in vitro that this could reduce the growth of a cancer cell line and confirm their studies in mice. The antibody CT16 was tested on non-small cell lung cancer. It's a human cancer in vitro. Decreased the number of cancer stem cells in the sample and also rendered the remaining cells more susceptible to radiation therapy. They also showed that the antibody worked by inhibiting EGFR, so classic antibody approach. It targets one particular, inactivates a particular receptor or pathway. But unlike other EGFR inhibitors, which are in play already, the cancer cells are unlikely to become resistant to this antibody because at the same time, it's inhibiting notch pathway, which is the way that a lot of these EGFR-based cancers become resistant is via the notch pathway. So you're kind of precluding the ability of these cancer stem cells to go to the next level and, and take on this resistance. And the way they proved this, they showed that these cancers already had the EGFR resistance, which was typically gained through notch signaling. The antibody didn't work. But if they caught the cancer before it gained that resistance, it worked very well, was very effective in killing the cancer cells, and in some cases more so than similar antibody therapies that are already in play and have been tested. So according to uh, co-author Chang'ai Lei, our data suggested that dual targeting of EGFR and not signaling might prevent or delay acquired resistance to EGFR inhibitors, but not overcome acquired resistance, okay? So that's an important point. And Carla Kim, who an expert in stem cells cancer and lung biology at Harvard Med School, she wasn't involved in the research, and she acknowledged the importance of the research, but she did say that because of the study's design, these are a couple caveats I want to throw out there, that the antibody's therapeutic potential could be limited. One, the tumors were injected subcutaneously. They aren't, weren't growing in the lung, which is the native environment of cancer. So we don't know how the therapy would work in the actual lung microenvironment and how that would affect response. Also, it's uncertain whether the actual cells that the group tested, these CD133 positive cells, are in fact cancer stem cells. They, one might argue, according to uh, Carla Kim, one might argue that there is no rigorous evidence that in vivo CD133 positive cells are absolutely cancer stem cells. Continuing her quote, there is an effect on tumor growth, which is really the most important thing. But what they're seeing may not be specific effect on cancer stem cells. It really depends on how much weight one puts on whether they really ID'd the cancer stem cell. Nevertheless, Kim is really optimistic about the future of cancer stem cell targeting therapies, quoting her again. There's plenty of evidence that either stem cells or stem cell-like tumors or rely on pathways that in some cases a normal progenitor cell utilizes. By studying these cancer stem cells, we might be able to uncover what those unique vulnerabilities are. Again, I think we've had a lot of guests on this show like this, Kiki. We're getting mm -hmm. to a point of our understanding, this molecular medicine approach, that we're really targeting what is enabling these cancers to be so malignant. And now you can see evidence of a therapy where we're doing these kind of biotech approaches where we're doing the kind of two-shot, you know, let's try and take out two targets with one approach and really stratifying the cancer into all the different permutations of its vulnerabilities, as well as the mechanisms that it uses to overcome chemo and radiotherapy. So we're really targeting these therapies, and the personalized medicine, I think, is coming close to fruition. This is evidence of that. Absolutely. I mean, the next step, though, is trying to take it from the lab into actual practice. Yeah. Is it actually going to work when you, when you get it into a person? Yeah, it was a high-profile study, but I noticed mm -hmm. a lot of criticisms from 
from Carla Kim there along mm-hmm. those lines, as you said, whether or not we're going to be curing cancer in, in humans as opposed to subcutaneous non-small cell lung cancer in mice. Yep. Uh, it remains to be seen. Yep. But keep studying, scientists. Keep working. Keep There'll be working. money for you, I hope. Maybe. We'll see. Maybe. We'll see. Call your Congress people. Yeah, <laughs> Call your representatives. You want to keep your research money? You let your voice be heard. Uh, we are done with the roundup, and it is time for our interview. All right. So our friends at Stem Cell Technologies are offering a free sample of NeuroCult NSA for brain tumor stem cells, which is the most referenced specialized culture medium for brain tumor stem cell culture. The culture medium supports the isolation and proliferation of brain tumor stem cells from both pediatric and adult tumors and from a variety of CNS tumor types and conforms to stringent quality control standards to ensure consistency. Stem cell podcast listeners can request a free sample at www.stemcell.com slash sample neurocult. Sample neurocult. So good. Yeah, if you're into those brain stem cells, brain tumor stem cells, get yourself a free sample. Free is good. Are you a grad student, postdoc? Go for the free stuff. (laughs) It's out there. Okay, so our guests today are Dr. Sean Hinkchen, Assistant Professor at the Department of Molecular Pharmaceutics at UNC Eshelman School of Pharmacy, and Dr. Matthew Ewand. He's Chair of the Department of Neurosurgery at UNC's School of Medicine. Dr. Hinkchen's research focus utilizes molecular imaging to characterize and validate novel stem cell-based targeted therapeutics for treatment of highly aggressive brain cancers. Most recently, Hinkchen and Ewan published a paper in Science Translational Medicine describing a novel method using neural stem cells to home into and infiltrate brain tumors in mouse models. Both of you, Dr. Hinkton and Ewan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. It's wonderful to have you here. So why don't we start out by getting a little bit more detail from Dr. Hinkton about your lab and its focus, please. In general, the focus of our lab is around brain cancer, so uh, in particular, glioblastoma. So it's the most common primary adult brain cancer, uh, also one of the deadliest tumors out there. Matt can speak to that. He sees these patients every day. So one of the big challenges that we have with trying to treat these tumors is that they're incredibly invasive. And so they create these little invasive fingers and roots that spread throughout the brain. Surgeons like Matt can't see those. Chemotherapy radiation are not good at targeting those. And so we need to create or try to create delivery vehicles that can go after and chase those invasive roots and fingers. And so that's where we're coming at this by using a stem cell. A lot of people think of stem cells, you think of regenerative medicine, which is certainly uh, an important aspect. You guys have had a lot of great guests on the show talking about all different important aspects of of stem cells. So our work focuses on kind of less well-known aspect of stem cells, and that is that they can chase your cancer. And so this is actually the work kind of grew out of Boston. and so. They showed that if you implant stem cells in the brain, they'll traffic through the brain, home in on both the primary brain tumor, but also the little invasive fingers and roots. And that ability allows them to track and all, all those little invasive fingers and actually deliver drugs as well. So it creates a little really powerful tumor homing drug delivery system. On that note, it's just to specifically talk about the brain, the tumor, the fingers that infiltrate there. You know, we've talked with a lot of different guests, as you mentioned. Some of them talk about the the means by which cancer gains these selective advantages, the resistance to chemo, 
And then there's like uh, the kind of sneaky residual tumor cells that hide out in these hidden niches that can't be targeted by chemo. Where does the glio for, uh, fall along that spectrum? Is it a matter of like the problem with glio is that we can't surgically remove it all because of those fingers and the chemo can't get into those niches because of blood brain barrier or something. What are the obstacles that led you to come to this innovation? Yeah, so the glioblastoma is a challenging tumor on many fronts. And the first is its location in the brain. And so unlike surgery in the colon, you take a foot on the left and a foot on the right, and you know you've got the whole tumor. We can't do that in the brain. We run right up against important structures. And as one of my patients said, be careful, I'm still using that. We, we're really limited in getting what you would consider traditional surgical margins, get a wide halo around the tumor. That's strike one. Strike two for us is uh, the blood-brain barrier, right? Mother Nature has put up a wall to keep things out of your brain. If you eat bad mushrooms, you don't want those toxins going into your brain, and the blood-brain barrier protects you from that. Unfortunately, a lot of the chemotherapy that we use and some of the newer drugs that we use are either uh, too big or too charged to get across the blood-brain barrier, so we can't get good drugs there even if they would work. Radiation has the same problems. We're usually limited not by how much radiation we wanna give the tumor, we're limited by how much radiation we can give to the normal brain that's touching the tumor. That's three strikes, but this isn't baseball, so the tumor keeps going. The fourth problem is that the tumor has a real tendency to send out little migrating fingers that you can't see on MRI, the surgeon can't see with surgery. And so even when we get a beautiful resection and we put the MRI up and we say, oh, it's a complete resection, we know there's tumor in there. Usually it's local tumor. It's within a couple centimeters of where we were. And so that's where a strategy like this becomes really important. I can take out 99% of the tumor on a good day, but I can never take out 100% and it always comes back. And that's why we're searching for a, a better solution. And so Dr. Hinchin mentioned the chemical signals that the stem cells use to track down cancer cells. What are we looking at there? Like, What kind of chemical signals are these special signals that you're you're sending the sniffer dogs in, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. So the one that people probably know the most or has been the best characterized is the FD, SDF, CXCR4 signaling axis. So that's pretty well established. Uh, the bottom line is they just don't know all the factors that are involved. But back to that CXCR4 SDF, so the tumor is giving off SDF. Your stem cells have CXCR4, causes them to be attracted uh, and crawl in. And so uh, that's the main axis. There's other components that they're trying to look at a little bit more. Hypoxia is believed to be involved. Maybe some growth factors like VEGF and, and things. So the, um, we need to dissect that out a little bit better in the field. You know, it, it's interesting. This may be an aside, and we're about to get into the paper. So I may be jumping ahead of myself here. Just because we're on the topic of CXCR4 and this tropism that you've just defined here, or it's been defined, and you've exploited, it's common to other kind of homing pathways, right? Like in the hematopoietic system, for instance, yes. it's kind of a similar mechanism. So why, and I know you're going to talk about this in a second, but just briefly, can you discuss, can you not use like blood cells that maybe would home to a tumor? Why do you have to generate these neural stem cells? You're absolutely right. So mesenchymal cells will also home to tumors. There's a lot of work out there. I even did that uh, during my postdoc, uh, different aspects of that. And I should also say, beyond other types of stem cells, the stem cells will also home to other types of damage. So they will hone in onto traumatic brain injury and that type as well, too. So we could use different sources. In general, the field is kind of leaned towards neural uh, stem cells, especially for the brain. 
There's a couple of head-to-head papers which show the neural cells move a little bit faster, so they, they migrate faster to the tumors themselves. We did some work showing they pump out higher levels of the drug. And uh, I guess some of it may be just that, you know, conceptually putting neural stem cells into the brain makes a little bit more sense than putting a mesenchymal cell into the brain. There are, there are other trials, though, that are looking at this type of technology. So uh, there's one I know at MD Anderson where they're using mesenchymal cells to actually target ovarian cancer. And this is an expanding field for both mesenchymal and, and neural stem cells. So as we go from this, can we start sagging into the paper itself and the results of your work? So I had done a lot of work, as I mentioned, using different stem cell types and, and had some great preliminary data showing this kind of concept of stem cell delivery really works well. And so when we came to UNC, one of the first people I met with was Matt. And we sat down and, and said, how are we going to make this therapy the most effective that we can in human patients? And I think one of the first concepts we came up with was you know, lots of times we're our own best source for stem cells. If we can make these specific for each patient, we don't have to worry about transplant rejection. We don't have to worry about putting these patients on high-dose steroids to try to stop that. And ultimately, if we can get the cells to persist, we think it just gives them the best time to home, the most time to home into these cancers, move through the brain, find all those foci, and then pump out drugs to kill it. So we think ultimately it would be the, the safest and the most effective approach. And so then again, in talking with Matt, we said, well, how do we come up with, you know, 100 million stem cells punched out of the center of a patient's brain? And then also, how do we make that fast enough to, to be compatible with a clinical time frame? You know, these patients have aggressive brain cancer, so do we, we don't have months to be generating these cells. Matt, can you comment on the clinical time frame? Like, what's the perspective from the surgeon's side and from the patient side? You know, it's a very difficult disease. Most people are going about their normal days and all of a sudden a seizure or something that looks like a stroke happens. And 12 hours later, a guy like me is telling them they have a brain tumor. So it's really a very sudden, uh, very powerful time for the families. And, you know, we generally would be off to surgery within a few days to a week because often the tumor has grown to a size where it's big enough that it's causing symptoms and there's swelling around it or some bleeding in it. So you don't have weeks and weeks to make up your mind about what to do. And then the patients after surgery a couple weeks later would traditionally start radiation and chemotherapy. We see a window to intervene with stem cells either at the time of that first surgery. That's a very tight window. We, we might be able to delay surgery two weeks for some patients, but we'd have to be able to get things ready to go in two weeks. But a lot of folks will go through the first round of therapy and then have a recurrence of the tumor. And that's another opportunity to intervene with the stem cell therapy. And if we've been planning ahead since we first met the patient, we'd be far more ready to have a, a self-product ready to go to treat them. What are we talking about in terms of, as you said, this is such a, I mean, gruesome uh, diagnosis for the family. Uh, how long and sudden, as you said, what's the typical prognosis or mortality, time, any of those details so we can really impress upon our audience how terrible this disease is? Sure. So, you know, when I started 20 years ago at UNC, I think we figured a patient with a newly diagnosed glioblastoma, average patient, you know, in their early 50s, might have a year to live and on average, right? There are a small number of folks who do better than that, and we want to make more people like them. Now we might say 15 months. So in those two decades, we've seen, you know, one or two steps in the right direction, but they're very modest. And you're still, you meet with a 55-year-old patient and say, good news, we're confident you'll live 18 months instead of 12. That is does not feel good to the doctor and to the families. It's devastating news. So we really need something 
you know, big in the armamentarium, whatever we come up with, and hopefully this will be wildly successful, it's still going to be a multi-step approach, a good surgery, likely radiation and chemotherapy, and then you've got the tumor burden as low as possible, but you know it's in there, and then an approach like this to try to really eradicate what's left of it. I don't imagine a patient has a softball-sized tumor and you just inject 100 million stem cells in there and wait a couple of weeks and everything will be okay. That's probably not a realistic expectation. Right. It's try and get rid of the remnants that the surgeon can't get to and try and reduce that brain load as much as possible. In the study that you've done, this not on humans, this is on mice. And what did you do with different groups of mice and what did you find? Do you want me to talk a little bit about the technology as well? Do you think the audience would be familiar with all the skin flipping and that type of stuff too? Or it's always good to go into details because you never know. It could be an undergraduate, could be somebody out of the field could be a colleague listening. It's great going the details. Yeah. When we looked at how could we make a personalized approach, basically we turned to this kind of field of cellularly reprogramming and basically technology that allows you to kind of morph your skin into different cell types. So the technology actually originally grew out of things that won the Nobel Prize in 2012, where you could take your skin and morph it backwards into these induced pluripotent stem cells, these cells that you know could remake all the different parts of the body and then you could actually go forwards and make the brain. But when we looked at that technology, it was a little too slow. So that's a really lengthy process, especially to make a, a dose that you could actually have enough cell to put in a human patient. We also had some safety concerns around those intermediate cell types because they could form tumors, form teratomas. Right about the time we were developing this, the, the kind of the next evolution of that technology came out, which allowed you to go straight from skin and morph it into the cell type that you wanted. So called direct reprogramming or transdifferentiation. We saw that technology as an opportunity to make a fast, personalized cell therapy. And so I think we're, we were the first group to really start using that to treat cancer. So previously, uh, about a year or so ago, we showed we could do that with mouse skin. So taking mouse skin, flipping it directly into these, they're called induced neural stem cells, INSCs. We showed for the first time that these things from your skin could actually home the tumors and deliver drugs that would kill glioblastoma. We've always wanted to move towards patients, and so the next step for us was to do it with human skin. And so in the current study, the first step we did was make a little bit better reprogramming cocktail, the flipping cocktail. So uh, we got it down to a single factor, and we got the time frame down to just a couple days where we could take your skin and flip it. Again, a lot of that was being driven by Matt's you know, two-week time frame. Can we work within that time frame? And then within the paper, we showed that when we flip the cells within about four or five days, you know, they start to look like cells from your brain. They grow as spheres and differentiate into things like neurons. The reviewers asked us to look at a lot of genetics because the, the, they were saying, look, it, it's only five days. There's no way you can turn your skin completely into the brain in just five days. And we said, that's very true. So we did a lot of the genetic profiling. Thankfully, the very first genes that we see turn on are the pathways associated with tumor homing. And we clearly haven't rebuilt a whole brain stem cell, but we've got those key components that we need so that your skin can go chase tumor. So then we did uh, some in vitro testing and different modeling and three-dimensional 3D models where we could show for the first time your skin could go chase cancer, uh, human cancer cells. We then uh, loaded them up with uh, different drugs. We can either pump out parts of your immune system. Uh, we use a drug called Trail, so it's actually binds to cancer cells and kills it. So uh, we showed that we could have pretty good tumor kill in the mouse. So uh, human cancer cells go in the mouse. We inject the cells in 
let them chase the cancer and kill it. We also then used another therapy where the cells are loaded with a, an inactive enzyme, so an inactive uh, kind of molecule. You give the mice an oral inactive drug, the cells convert it into an active compound, kind of creates a halo of drug around the cell. And then we actually even use that in a resection cavity. So trying to model what Matt does in the clinic, we implant the human tumor, resect it back out, and then drop the cells into the center of that cavity and then activate the drug and showed again, we're able to stop recurrence or slow recurrence in that setting. So that was kind of the, the whole breadth of the, the paper in the study. Wow. You guys aren't playing, huh? So it's interesting to me because I love these approaches. You know, I think there's some people who are like, well, you have to be the physiological correlate, blah, blah, blah. I like this pragmatic approach. Yeah. They're not brain cells per se, but they turn on the pathways they need to. You get them in there. They do the job. They kill. But let's say the one thing I wonder is that you have cells that are kind of native, these neural-like stem cells or whatever you want to call them, even though they've been transdifferentiated, they kind of, their wheelhouse is the brain, right? Do you worry, I guess, implicit, the, the short answer, I guess, would be that these cells die when they kill everything else, they die too? Or is there the potential that these cells will also contribute to brain structures? Sure, that's a great question. So... It's a little bit hard to model, as I'm sure as you know, with the stem cell, right? So we're putting stem cells in the mouse. They're being cleared, you know, even in skin mice, they were all cleared in about 20 days. So it's really hard to do long-term studies to really get at that question. If we use mouse stem cells, which is, you know, uh, gives us longer persistence. We looked out in the previous paper, it's about a month or so. So we need to go longer, certainly for clinical approval and clinical safety. But we see most of the cells staying as neural stem cells. They do start to differentiate at times into neurons, which is really kind of driven by the cocktail we use for the flipping. It has things like SOX2 in it, which kind of drives it towards a, a neuronal uh, differentiation at times. I think that is something we need to be careful of as we look at translating this into human patients. One of the things in order to address that would be we can use this prodrug enzyme. It also acts as a safety switch. So we can actually ablate the cells out if we would need to, if we would see any unexpected toxicity from these. So it, it's something we want to certainly characterize well as we move towards translation. Yeah, it's important to know where are those cells going, what are they doing? And in the mouse model, is it mouse immune system is responding to these human cells and taking them out over that 20-day period? Exactly. So we're trying to use you know, skid mice, which are T-cell, B-cell depleted, but even within, they're still getting rejected. It's very similar to neural stem cells that came from the brain. We've seen you know, similar clearance with those as well, too. With the tumors that were reduced, I mean, 20 to 50-fold reduction, but not complete reduction. We're not talking 100% reduction. And then also, when you surgically removed the tumors and put the treatment into the cavity, it was still not complete removal. Like we're, You're not getting at those tumor stem cells. And so... This could potentially, in humans, extend lifespan. So taking from the mice and how much longer they survived, how can you translate into the possible potential for human survival? Is this going to be, you know, a year to 15 months, suddenly to three years or 10 years? I think it's really, we have to be really cautious about those sorts of extrapolations. But I would say this, first of all, 
There's no particular reason that this can only be done once. That's right. And so if we're in there doing surgery and we're going to leave the cells behind, however we do that, it's the most intuitive time to do it. But there may be other ways to dose the cells, either through direct injection or through other forms of delivery. So, you know, in a perfect world, you may find that you have to do maintenance therapy of this. But since the source is your skin and if you're like me, you have some extra, we can continue to make these as long as it's working and as long as they're having efficacies. I think we don't want to think about this as a one-time therapy, although I'm sure the first trials will probably yeah. center on one time because they'll look at safety, but think of it more as a long-term strategy. We've talked to a previous guest who I just can't get over this idea. I'm really sweating this guy on his idea of using the Zika virus as a vehicle, right? With the tropins of Zika, you know, the same way we've done with Lenti generally, attenuated viruses and use them to inform a lot of biology. Is there an idea of translating your therapy into a direct, like, for instance, instead of reprogramming in vitro from the skin, can you just like deliver the reprogramming factor directly to the site to create kind of flip in situ? So we could. The first papers have just been coming out where you can deliver the reprogramming cocktail. And in that case, you would hit the astrocytes, obviously, and you can morph your astrocytes into things that look like neural stem cells or all the way to neurons. It could be something eventually we could do. Just, I think, conceptually thinking about it, my concern would be a little bit, you are going to probably hit tumor. There may be tumor on the cavity. I'd be a little bit careful with that. The other thing is, remember, we have to make the stem cells toxic. They are not in and of themselves toxic. So we'd have to put the, yeah, yeah, co-infect them with whatever. Is that a live process? Or you just like dump a bunch of chemical on these cells or do you make them create? Like they're transfected or transduced to kind of make it, right? Exactly right. They're transduced, actually doubly transduced. So they, we put in the reprogramming cocktail, so we flip them and then we put in whatever therapy we want or we put in imaging agents if we want to, you know, track, put in colors and things so we can see where they go, see how much are there, uh, that type of stuff too. Is there any idea about like persistence? I mean, you mentioned you can't do it. There's no reason you can't do it more than once. Is it dangerous to have just a surveillance? Can you just have the cells living in there in case when any kind of Mets pop up, they get them? I'd love to. So we've not done that. I guess we should do that. We're maybe pre-dose with the stem cells and then put in the tumors. Yeah, Yeah, that'd be interesting. So that's cool. Uh, Next paper. Next paper. We'll get on that. That's a great idea. All right. I want to be second (laughs) author. Second author. (laughs) In the contract. That's a deal. You're in the middle, right? It's a great idea. Yeah. Talking about the mouse brain versus human brain, again, we're dealing with also much smaller distances. And when you're talking about these micro tendrils of cells kind of peak weaving themselves throughout the brain. How far can these stem cells go? How quickly do we know? Do we have any idea how far they will actually travel to take care of the tumors? So scale is an issue. In the mouse study, we use mouse stem cells to try to give us the maximal persistence. So the the best answer I can give is if you put the tumor in one hemisphere and plant the stem cells in the other, they will traverse the mouse brain. Now that's, you know, what, maybe, maybe as big as your pinky fingernails. Like a garbanzo bean. (laughs) You'll never think of hummus the same. (laughs) So it's an important question. So I think we we, uh, need to make better models that are larger and can predict that. And then there's some potential where we could do large animal studies. Maybe it's a little bit challenging. I think dogs are about the only animal that actually gets spontaneous brain tumors. And so dogs could be an option a little bit bigger, but we don't know. 
there is a trial ongoing in California with some of the, these brain stem cells. And so hopefully the first results of that, when they come out, maybe we can get a little bit more information on the size and homing of that too. So we'll see. What is the next steps for you guys uh, specifically yeah. on, in terms of translation? I'll take it out. No, we're pushing hard, so we're at a good place to do it. So uh, having a clinical partner is fantastic. So we're working on all fronts and everything is focused at translation. So on the science part, working with Matt, we've actually been getting skin. So we went mouse skin, human skin. Now we're doing cancer patient skin. And that's a little bit different also because the patients are typically 55, 60 years old. So they're older patients than we're used to. And as you know, every patient's different. So we're getting heterogeneity within the samples. We've got about 10 different uh, skin samples from GBM patients. We've also got it matched to the tumor. So we're also starting to get skin and tumor from the same patient. So we can kind of model that personalized aspect back in the dish as well as the mouse. So uh, pushing on all that front with Matt's help and some of the, the other team members we have here, we're working on, you know, designing the trial, selecting, you know, our lead product, all that type of stuff too. And uh, UNC is also lucky. We're one of the few centers that has a cell production facility. So we have a, a GMP grade cell production facility. So we brought them in to advise and all that. So uh, Lineberger Cancer Center has sponsored that and they're actually running CAR-T trials there. So they're up and running and ready to make the product. So pushing on the research side to develop it and then working on the translational side uh, just to, to start talking with FDA and, and get rolling on all that. Given the grim prognosis for these patients, do you think you kind of get like a fast track? You think it'll be easier to get these kind of cell therapies? Because that may be a bulwark. It's hard to get cells through the FDA. I mean, it's a huge challenge. I feel like this is a place where it might be the first, you know, the cutting edge and the first place we can get in just because these patients don't really have many other options. Would you agree? I agree. I think the FDA has to straddle a, a tough fence between watching over the well-being of patients and acknowledging that some of these folks doing nothing is the worst thing you can do for them. So we're hopeful that we have a good idea that it will be safe and that the FDA will see the dire need these folks are in and help us move quickly through the regulatory process. And, and we're at the start of that. Yeah. But you know, we've always said in any project that we take on, we want the last sentence to be, and then we took it to humans for trial, right? So everything that we do is about getting to patients. And, and I think that clarity on our team has really helped us to drive what we're doing. Kind of in clinical trial sense, it very often goes, you know, mouse model to primate model to humans. Are you going the primate route or are you going to try to jump straight to humans? Yeah, we'll see. You know, we have a really good advisor, a couple of people that really know the process, the approval process much better than I do. The feeling is that we may not need to do large animals just because uh, non-human primates you maybe need to do a safety study. I mean, we're not going to certainly be able to do efficacy studies. And then again, the real question is, even within that, does it really predict the safety of these products? It's still going to always be an allogenic transplant and a xenogenic transplant for a you know, personalized therapy. So hopefully we're going to do whatever the FDA asks because we want to make sure it's safe. Even for our own knowledge, we may run some of those just to make sure that they're safe. Uh, whether that data needs to go in our FDA submission packet, I guess we'll see. The, the kind of feeling is no. That's the best advice we have right now from the people that know that a lot better than I do. And I don't think there's a primate model for the tumor, so it would be safety studies in the larger animals. I'm just wondering, we were talking earlier, uh, Dalen and I, about the change to science funding and biomedical funding and also to groups like the FDA that regulate various things. Do you see anything on the horizon that might be a hurdle in terms of 
funding or even the regulatory process as far as your work? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, that's an easy one. It's a long process and you need funding at every stage. And unfortunately, the way the process is designed, really it's set up with a lot of off ramps and it's hard to get back on. So, you know, not enough funding at a key time or one set of toxicity tests that don't look favorable and you can really be knocked off in a way where it's hard to get back down, which is too bad because I'm sure there are good ideas that have been left behind just because the process is so narrowing. But we do have patient safety, right? That's what we're after at the end of the day is not a great paper or a grant, but, but treatment of patients. So yeah, we've been successful in getting funding to date. We'll need continued funding and certainly welcome anybody listening to participate in that. <laughs> and we'll work, you know, with our partners at the FDA to make sure that we do this in a way that ensures safety for the patients. And then we're going to need some brave patients to say, okay, I'll be first. Are you at a stage where you do partner with private or biopharma? Or is this where you really need to work out the, the early science and safety stuff with federal money? What's the, the landscape like there for you guys? Uh, like Matt said, you know, it's tough. So we're pushing on all fronts. We're open to all options. We've been lucky so far. One of the great things, uh, we're in the School of Pharmacy here at UNC, and they just got a $100 million private donation. And so that's been able to fund some of the initial development, actually try to help get us towards a clinical product. Lineberger Cancer Center also helped step in with funds to actually kind of get this the ball rolling. So we've been lucky to get a lot of grant support. We had some federal funding from actually from the state of North Carolina and from NIH to help. Um, at the, another aspect is actually we're, we're, we're delivering the cells in a little transplantable matrix, to stabilize them in the cavity. So we've got some funding there to push that too. And always looking for, uh, you know, outside support from all different angles. So we'll see, we'll see, you know. We will need partnership with industry yeah, to make this happen, right? There's yeah. no way for an academic institution to take an idea like this all the yeah. way through to clinical trials without partnership from industry. We're, we're going to welcome that. And we're, you know, yeah. in the stages of talking to folks yeah. about that as well. Well, it's very exciting. Obviously, a lot of moving parts to this, but you guys seem to have, you seem to have it under control. You've got a plan. It's good. I have to say, I went to uh, Duke. So naturally, I hate all you guys from UNC <laughs> Chapel Hill. But I'm surprised. I'm yeah. surprised. You're pretty yeah. good. You're pretty <laughs> good. I'll hand it to you. <laughs> That's a left-handed compliment. Right? Basketball <laughs> season, I know that's extra tough. And we're recording right in the middle of March Madness. So, you know, Duke, Apropos, although Duke, Duke just lost. <laughs> I noticed you, you didn't wear the dark blue. So no, no, I couldn't betray myself. I have to be honest. I always had more fun on the UNC campus, if, if I'm perfectly honest. Yeah, well, it's a great area. We're it glad to fun. be here. Yeah. Well, you're doing great things. Keep it up, guys. Thanks. Thank you very much. No, I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah thanks so much. All right, Kiki, that was a great interview. Professor Hinkin really capitalizing on this back end of cell therapy that few people talk about, but we've alluded to it. Our guests have been talking about it. Over the weeks, we've been talking a lot about brain cancer. In the past, I remember we talked about how we could maybe use Zika because it has a tropism towards neural stem cells. Here, Dr. Hinkin's using these neural stem cells derived from iPS cells to home in on cancer. I think this is like a really unexpected or not atypical, but when people think therapeutics that are based on stem cells, they're always like, oh, regenerative, regenerative. But what we don't realize is that we've got a biological tool here that's like really smart. It's like a smart bomb. 
that can target. And now we've got an option that's not going to be immune rejected. I think this mm-hmm. is a big step forward. Smart bombs for brain tumors. That's what we want. We need it. These yeah. brain tumors are pretty smart, as it turns out. No coincidence there, huh? Yeah. We need something smarter. Right. Targeted therapies. There we go. Smarter than your brain, or at least the brain tumors. <laughs> All right. At this point, let's close this show with a good old stem cell podcast rant. This rant is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you. All right, Dalen, what are we ranting about today? I'm in a very weak position right now, Kiki, because I am not good at a lot of things. And one of them is responsiveness. Ah. But you know what? I hate myself more than anything for. And when I do this, I apologize in earnest, is when the email ghost situation, you know, professionally in particular, when I email a friend and they don't get back to me, I'm like, ha ha ha, okay, fine. We're not friends anymore. I'll never see you again. I can live with that. It happens <laughs> all the time. But when you get ghosted professionally, yeah. it's so crushing because it makes you feel small and it makes you feel weak. And I know that you've had an experience about this and I want I want to hear about your anger. I don't want to hear <laughs> Your sadness. <laughs> I don't want to hear your sadness or yeah. vulnerability. I want you to lash out, Kiki. I'm pretty annoyed, actually. But, you know, I reached out to someone in a professional context. And there was one email back and forth. And then I emailed back. And then nothing. Nothing. Gone. Zip zero. Zilch. There wasn't even email from them saying, hey, did you email me? You know, like trying to catch up on the conversation. You know, there was no, it was it was I was dead to them, and then I emailed them again. No response again. I mean, I've emailed. Oh, no. I was like, I'll wait another week and I'll send another email. No uh, response. Yeah, cool. I'm like okay, may, I understand people have busy schedules. They're you know, people are under the gun. So I'm trying to be thoughtful in that way, not too pushy, right? I don't want to come across as too pushy, but then I get no responses at all. It makes me feel like, did I do something wrong? Did I say something wrong? Are they angry at me? Am I getting cut out of a circle because they've decided they're going to go another direction and they're just not telling me? And all of a sudden I am questioning myself. (laughs) It makes me feel so bad. (laughs) I got it. I got what you do. This is a strategy I learned in high school. Okay. Here's what you do. You go to that professional person. Go to their house. You go to their comrade. (laughs) Yes. You go, you park outside their house and you just wait. And then when they walk out the door, you say, I'm confronting you because I just want to know that you've got my email. Okay. And I want to, I want you to tell me that just you're not going to email me Just please tell me to my face. Back. I'm or, never or emailing you tell again. Tell me my face. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That, I don't know how that's going to work out for you yeah. professionally long term, but you will get that momentary satisfaction wait, of what? the shock on that, that person's face. Wait, what do you mean? Uh, wait, what's the number for 911? <laughs> I mean, I, I understand the not getting back because the the email gets buried or, you know, but when somebody emails you multiple times, you just, it's just one sentence, hey, thanks a lot. We're not going to be interested in this. Or, hey, just let a person down lightly. It's okay. It's okay. You know, I might sign up for an account, (laughs) just send you an email (laughs) from a known account saying, it's not going to work, babe. Move on. (laughs) Yeah, but come on, people. All right. 
The good news is you're angry. That's what I'm saying. You're angry. You're frustrated. You're getting it out, and you're going to have a good day after this because you ranted about it. it That's what we're here for. That's right. So everyone, send us your rant ideas on Twitter if you have a rant idea at Stem Cell Podcast or email stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. Dalen, this concludes episode 88 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Once again, a fantastic interview. Great science stories for the day. Some good news and bad news all mixed in, but great all around. Everyone, be sure to tune in for the next episode where we will be delivering the latest papers and having another wonderful Stem Cell Podcast interview once again. Dalen, I'm looking forward to it. Yes, me too, Kiki. Don't send any emails to anybody anymore, okay? Enough emails. You need to play it cool for at least two weeks. Play it cool, Kiki. Play it cool.